0: Today is part two of our documentary series on the Seychelles Truth, Reconciliation and National Unity Commission. Beneath the surface of this paradise archipelago lies a hidden and tragic history of torture, murder and false disappearances. I speak with Dimitri Vijay Singha, an international investigator, and ask how he managed to persuade the high level intelligence operatives, military officers and perpetrators of death squads to open up and reveal their truths? And how did the victims' families feel when finally facing these perpetrators? As always, we connect how these processes of truth-telling could be applied in the UK context when looking into our colonial past, the aim of which is to create dialogue over division and help us overcome the toxic culture wars of today.
1: As the international investigator, basically, the chairperson tasked me with major crimes, which are murder, torture, uh, rape and other forms of sexual violence, and also enforced disappearances. And we would, you know, look for any witnesses that they could possibly mention, any suspects. More historic cases, we would look for open source evidence, uh, anything we could find online, because I'm just putting the pieces together.
0: It sounds like a major job. I mean, what's your background?
1: Typically investigators come from an investigative journalist background or, you know, from the law enforcement industry, intelligence services. I did my master's in human rights and I specialized in kind of uh, documenting conflict-related sexual violence. And from there, I, I, you know, had 10 months at the International Criminal Court. And then someone, you know, told me about this, that, you know, Gabriel McIntyre, this renowned international lawyer, was hiring for this truth commission. So I just sent you know sent her an email
0: and can you explain the difference between or your experience the difference between a truth commission and an international court
1: well one thing i feel is just the objective of the two are different with the truth commission i recall you know a lot of times there were cases where we felt like people just needed to let it out they needed to vent they had so much pent-up anger and sadness that they just needed to get out uh the cases that are really difficult to prove you know cases that involve things like black magic uh that are really difficult as an investigator to corroborate but still we would allow people to come and you know provide their uh testimony and just kind of you know share their their experiences you know with the commission because at the end of the day it's a healing process whereas international courts are obviously uh, kind of more uh, typical you know judicial systems I think also with the Truth Commission, the evidentiary threshold is uh, is a bit lower, just given the context of the cases we're dealing with. A lot of Truth Commissions are dealing with a huge kind of uh, mandate. You know, if you look at the South Africa Commission, if you look at uh, the new Australian Commission for Indigenous mm-hmm. indigenous Rights, uh, you're looking at a far greater scope of time uh, to deal with, whereas international courts are dealing with kind of a more specific uh, situation.
0: And And also... I imagine that an international court, people are scared of prosecution. Well, it is prosecution. You're going after uh, perpetrators. How did you explain to them the difference? They must have been nervous. And did you did you think they actually saw it like an international court?
1: At, at the beginning, it was just building trust with these guys because yeah, they really just thought that that we were going to screw them over. I suppose because they just thought you know we're going to get them. To come and give us this evidence, and then we're going to use it against them and prosecute them. So I think we have to be just build trust first before we kind of convince them of anything about how the truth commission works.
0: How did you do that? How did you build the trust with? I mean, these with people who have um, allegedly performed really rather horrific uh, human
1: rights abuses. Well, I always think rule number one is when you approach someone, don't don't be judgmental. I think these perpetrators, what people, I guess, didn't really understand is that, you know, the whole situation is far more nuanced than you'd think. It's not really black and white, good and bad. would always approach them with no judgment. It's like, listen, I have this evidence of, you know, these allegations against you and what you've supposedly done. But at the end of the day, I need their the help to, you know, get this evidence, get this intelligence for our cases. And I kind of also just try to try to be understanding and empathetic to their situation. When you ask them about what they did, why they did it, their upbringing, how they got into the military, how they got into the intelligence services, um, you know, the orders they were given and how those orders were given and just taking our time to understand them and also taking risks, you know, uh, something with investigators, you know, obviously we're not armed don't, I mean, in the Seychelles, I really had no security either, you know, no close protections or offices or anything like that. Uh, And, you know, I would go almost on a daily basis to their houses on their territory and kind of show them, listen, I'm not afraid of you. I'm not scared of you because I feel like I don't have to be scared of you, which means I trust you. And if I trust you, you can trust me too. And try and build a relationship like that.
0: Pretty vulnerable and brave thing to do. Did you have any hairy moments?
1: You know, I didn't. People are always kind of shocked, right? Because you talk about these guys who are, um, you know, in the intelligence services, essentially part of a death squad. And, you know, they were very highly trained individuals and very, very sophisticated in their skill set. But no, I never had, I feel, with them. I was never put at risk. You know, obviously, the first few times I meet some of them, and I go to their houses, there is a little bit of uncertainty of okay, like I need to be aware of where I am and you know who's around me and things like that. I wasn't scared and I we never had any situations where they got aggressive. You know, sometimes they would get emotional. I would visit one of the perpetrators who was detained on a different for a different crime at uh, one of the detention centers in the country. And he was very emotional about his case. And sometimes, you know, and he was a big you know like a big muscular dude um much bigger than i am and when he was to get angry he would slam both his hands on the table and the whole table would shake you know and you would have the people around me would just jump because they would think that this guy's gonna be you a know, jump at them but you know i was sitting right next to him and look you know, listening to him and what you know kind of looking at him while he was telling me this and slamming his hands on the table and i knew that that anger wasn't towards me so i had nothing to be scared of you know but there were those moments, obviously, where they would get emotional and angry, but that's all understandable given the kind of questions we were asking them and the situations we were kind of putting them in. Can you give
0: an example of what kind of questions you were asking or a particular case? Is there any, one that stands out to you? Like that that guy, who? what was he accused of?
1: He was uh, involved in two murder cases. Um, of two different persons. And, you know, he was one of the few perpetrators who actually came forward and confessed. You know, so credit to him on that on that part because not a lot of the perpetrators actually confessed. I think with the questioning, it's really interesting because, you know, I think people have this kind of image of how investigators question suspects as this very, very, you know, confrontational, uh, aggressive kind of interrogation. Uh, and I guess that comes from movies and... TV shows and things, but I, you know, always was very relaxed and I would build to it. I would always start off with an open-ended question, get them talking, you know, get them comfortable speaking and, you know, uh, kind of get that fluidity going in our conversation. And once that openness was there, and they were talking and telling me things. So I'd always start with general questions like, hey, so, okay, 1984, what what was your life like? You know, what were you doing? Were you married? Like, did you have kids? What was your job? You know, what rank were you in the military? Very basic questions just to get them talking. And then I would kind of bring in the more pointed questions of, listen, so you said you were a major in the army at that time. Do you know this guy? He disappeared that same year. And according to our you know, evidence, he disappeared. He was maybe taken to the same army camp where you were the major and the commanding officer. So, you know, do you know anything about that? And then, you know, we would, build it like that but it always starts off as a general conversation you know I'm not going to jump straight in and be like did you do this
0: when you say very few perpetrators came forward you did have that 10-year threat of, of imprisonment if they didn't come forward and be part of the court how, did, were they aware of that and how often how did you mediate your way through that if somebody was not being so compliant
1: so that stipulation um was not that they had to confess, obviously, you know, because that was that would just not be right, but it was that you know, when there were communications sent from the commission, they would have to comply. And most of these guys would do that. So we so we never, I don't think we really enforced that re- at at any point, but it was always a threat that we used when needed. Listen, these guys are intelligence officers. They're inter- high level intelligence operatives and military personnel. They knew how to play the system. They knew, OK, we're going to go to the commission, but it's what we say that matters. It's not about whether we go or not. It wasn't as straightforward as threatening them with jail time uh, to try and get them to tell us things.
0: It was about how to open them up, maybe. I mean, that, yes, Gabrielle mentioned that, that they'd find ways in the court to kind of say, we're re- we're really sorry for what happened. But not point the finger to particularly to themselves.
1: It's not with everyone. Was that your experience? You know, experience? I think with certain individuals, we were successful in pulling at their, you know, finding the kind of correct pressure points. Uh, so we had one very very pro- prolific member of you know the dead squad, and how you know we approached him in one one way, obviously uh, amongst others was that he had a, you know, very young child whom he loved, clearly, you know, from my interactions with him, going to his house, I could see this was his golden child. I was to tell him, if things go south, and you end up in jail, for some reason, this, this little kid is going to grow up without a dad, because you're probably going to go away for a long time. So I said, you know, listen, we're trying to help you out. We're not trying to put you in jail, we're trying to keep you out of jail, but we need your help. We need your cooperation, because there are, so many families out there that are just looking for their loved ones who want to know why their loved ones were killed. Uh, you know, they just want answers and you can give us those answers and we can help you, spend, you know, live a happy life with your child. And, you know, we those types of things would sometimes work, you know, and that would obviously come after building trust with these guys. But there were others who you just couldn't crack because they were so uh, kind of faithful to the cause, you know, to the coup d'etat and to the purpose of the coup d'etat they were so 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 loyal to that that they just would not crack so we would have to find alternative means of prov- proving the cases against them
0: is it what i'm hearing from you is a sort of trying to get people to soften on uh, like come out of their positions in a way um through a gentleness is that yeah i mean i say? think
1: <clears throat> something i i am in general not an aggressive person and I do not take an aggressive approach uh, to my interviews and to kind of engaging with these people. Um, there are different reasons for that. Obviously, again, it's in my nature. Uh, I also find that, you know, confrontation doesn't necessarily garner the best results. Um, and also something I always kind of was reminded myself of is these are hardened men. You know, these are men who have had difficult lives that I cannot imagine who have been through things I cannot imagine, and who are very, very highly trained, you know, they are not going to respond well to aggression from me. But they might respond well to me trying to understand their situation. And something that they never were given was understanding and empathy. No one tried to empathize with them. No one tried to understand how they ended up doing what they do. And I think having someone come there and talk to them about and try to actually listen to them and, you know, think about why did you end up being a killer? You know, I think they appreciated that and that made them want to talk more.
0: Did you have experiences of how difficult it was for the perpetrators to to actually tell their families what they'd been doing? Quite often their families had no idea, or their children, like you say, had no idea that they had been murderers.
1: Yeah, Is I that mean, the it case? was really, really... Uh, heartbreaking sometimes. I would go to one of these, one of the guy's houses and he's the one with the little the child and he would take me, you know, we'd go in, he'd take me to the living room, sit me down and get everyone to leave the room. And that's how we would do our interviews and stuff. Once he told me, he's like, listen, Dimitri, can I tell you something? I'm like, what's up? He's like, uh, there's a little issue. You know, it's a, it's a safety concern. And I said, okay, is someone threatening. You he said, no, but kids are making fun of My son at school saying your dad's a killer because that's what their parents have told him and they're bullying him and he's seven years old. These are situations that we would encounter which were so sad because, you know, that child has nothing to do with this.
0: That's sort of the cost to the perpetrator as well, isn't It's actually exposing to their family. And they must want to try and explain to their family how they got involved as well. These new truths, do you feel for the victims that they, yeah, did it work to bring out the truth of where, of somebody that had disappeared, for example? I remember in the South African Truth Commission, people found out where their relatives, they never knew what had happened to them and they found out where they were buried or what their last hours were like. Did the Truth Commission disclose some of these
1: new truths? I mean, I think we went really far with what we could do, our situation was dire. The cover up on the crimes, the serious crimes that were committed was very, very high level. No police reports, no police investigations, no, no paper trail at all. Prior, you know, these cases were from the 80s. A lot of the disappearance cases happened in the 80s and late 70s. So a lot of witnesses weren't alive anymore. You know, tracking down witnesses was difficult. Some of the perpetrators weren't alive anymore. So proving these cases was very, very difficult. And unfortunately, we never re- we never really identified the burial places uh, of a lot of the disappeared. And we had an idea, but we couldn't really pinpoint it to this is exactly where this person is. We couldn't recover the remains. That to, t- to date is something I, I'm still disappointed in myself for uh, and not being able to achieve while I was there for the disappearance cases I was on because I really do feel for the victims. I mean, it, those victims have been dealing with these things for so long and the trauma they've endured is, is amazing. It's, I, I always admire them for the, how resilient they are to just keep cooperating with the commission. But I think we did give them answers. I always ask them once, you know, they've read the reports and things. I'm like, how do you feel? Does this make it any better for you? A lot of the time with the Seychelles, what it was was also reaffirming what they had already believed happened. You know, just being told, yes, this is like this is what we thought happened, but now we have concrete proof. It's in writing, from a truth commission. You know, it's not just the, this is not just what we believe. This is actual fact. There was one case, uh, you know, where this it was a sister of the victim who was the complainant, and he supposedly died in a car crash. That was the party line. That's what everyone believed, and we found that it was state sponsored she always believed it was state sponsored and people called her crazy and you know would make fun of thing oh she's just nuts she just wants to believe that but it's a, he just it was just a car crash he was drunk he was speeding right but we found that no the, it was state sponsored and that validation was so important to her you know even if we couldn't say this is exactly who did it this is you know these were the exact people who were involved in the operation you know, we did that. We could prove that in some of the cases, but for this one, we couldn't. And but that validation meant so much to her. And she messaged me and thanked me, you know, for the work that we did, because I guess it took a weight off her shoulders.
0: Yes. And um, that is a real example of exposing a new truth, retelling history and the effects of validation. I was going to ask you what you experienced of the effects of the Truth
1: Commission on the victims generally? Um, You know, it's a very complicated question in the context of the Seychelles Truth Commission. And this goes back to also the uh, issue with lack of outreach and the lack of understanding from the general population of what the Truth Commission can do, you know, what its capacity is, and also what it's set out to achieve. I think with some of the cases, you know, the victims came to us having an idea of what they thought happened to their loved one, but being open to what the commission finds, they put their trust in us to, okay, you guys are the professionals, we're going to let you figure figure this out and you tell us what you find. And, you know, they would cooperate along the way. But we also had some victims where they had such a clear idea of what had happened and they were seeking that validation, but our findings didn't corroborate their story. Say, for example, in one of the murder cases, we did find, yes, they were murdered. We found exactly who murdered them. We got those people to confess. So, we really solved that crime. You know, we got everyone to confess. we got the perpetrators to tell us in detail what they did, right? But one of the allegations was torture. And the perpetrators said, "Listen, we didn't torture him. We kidnapped him. we we brought him to a location, and we murdered him, right? We did not torture him because we had no reason to torture him. We did not we were not looking for information from him. This was a hit. We were given an order by the president, take this guy out, not get any information from him, none of that, take him out. But the wounds, basically, they dumped his body in the ocean, and it was found a couple of days later. So through the body being in the ocean, you know, it, it decays, it bloats. It was near the corals, so it was getting damaged by grazing against the corals, things like that, and there dam- was damage around the body. But it wasn't torture, So, but the family were insistent. No, it was torture, it was torture, it was torture. The perpetrators are lying they did torture him. And, you know, that that point it's difficult because they want to believe what they want to believe. And all, we cannot obviously alter fact to meet what they meet their expectations. Uh, and it's a very, very difficult thing there. When, uh, I actually, hear,
0: when I hear you tell that story, I think, how did you manage and how does it work, a truth commission to hear and reopen all that pain? you know your your secondary witnessing kind of and hearing testimony that is really heartbreaking and shocking how did it affect you personally
1: i think someone who deserves a lot of credit and i'm going to take this second to actually say it is gabrielle herself would not have been able to survive two years in the seychelles without her support the the crimes you were dealing with and things like that that's that's what we signed up for you know that's kind of part and parcel of what we do and we understand the ramifications that come with that to mental health to physical health to your personal life and what you have to do to deal with it but the seychelles made life very difficult for us that's really how i got through those two years is having her just back me up all the time thinking
0: of the victims with the perpetrators gabrielle said one of the extraordinary things was that the victims were given the chance to really confront their perpetrator of the crime. How did you experience that?
1: I think that was really helpful. I think a lot of people came out of that feeling better. And I think they. it was important for them to say what they had to say. We had one guy who was part of the squad who, after he, you know he would confess to us and tell us things, He kept telling us, please, where can I beat the victims? Where can I beat them? Because, you know, we would tell him, please don't like, you know, approach a bit public and things like that. You know, they might be scared. They don't know what's exactly happened. Like, you know, we haven't disclosed the fact that you're involved in this yet. And he would always ask us, he's like, Dimitri, please tell me, when can I meet these people? I want to meet these people. I want to tell them, like, how sorry I am for what I did. From what they said, you know, he like, listen, we did this because we were given orders and told that what we're doing was to protect the nation national security was to protect our president. And now you're telling us that all all these people we killed, some of them it wasn't like it wasn't, not, it was necessary. You know, there was no threat. It was a personal vendetta or it was some other reason. You know, they wanted to convey that to the victims. And the victims obviously wanted to pose their questions to the perpetrators and to just, I guess, yell at them and confront them and tell them how they've how the loss of their loved one has affected them. So I think it was a really important process for them to kind of engage like that. And it was actually, for the most part, it was very civil and very well controlled by the commission. But I think it was a very important part of our process.
0: It sounds like both sides, perpetrators and victims, went through some kind of process of transformation. Do you think that happened? And what do you think
1: the transformation was? I think with the perpetrators, I always talk with the perpetrators because I feel like I spend most of my time uh, was dealing with them. <clears throat> and so I got to know them a lot, better, you know, like really, really well. Whereas with the victims, I mean, there were so many victims, but given I would only be working on a, a certain selection of cases, you know, and I would never, I mean, obviously I wouldn't be seeing them all the time because I wouldn't want to, you know, bother them all the time. I would kind of want them to have their peace. And I know it's very traumatic for the victim to always, you know, constantly be engaged with the case, I know with one of my disappearance cases, I would deal with, it was a family of 13 siblings. And it was one of the siblings who would constantly communicate with me. And I would tell her, I would be like, listen, at any point, you know, I'm going to let you come to me with questions. I will come to you when I have new findings. But if you have questions, come to me because I don't want to bother you. And with regards to transformation, I think the perps got a better understanding of what happened and you know, how they were used and how they were manipulated into doing these things. It's obviously difficult to hear because they dedicated their lives to this, the work that they did. They were, they thought they were doing it for a just cause. And they they learned that they, they didn't do it for a just cause, that there were alternative means. And it was a difficult thing for them. But I think, I, think, well, I remember one of the victims once during that confrontation, during the hearing, asked one of the perpetrators, would you ever? Would you ever do this again? And the perpetrator said, "You could pay me all the money in the world, but I would never do this again." You know, and that was really telling.
0: Do you think there's wider lessons from that that transformation and that story to other countries? If those stories could be told, other countries and people in similar situations would also learn from that.
1: Yes, I mean, I think that what we dealt within the Seychelles, what we found out and these lessons that we learned, I feel it could be benefit a lot of people. And I think something that I developed over there, and I feel like I constantly try to convey this when I talk to people now, is empathy, you know, is learning to be empathetic towards everyone and not judging people. And yes, there's always a degree of right and wrong, but also understanding what, you know, why, not just, you know, what happened, but why did it happen? And what kind of brought these people to do these things? And I think it can be uh, very useful. I mean, I'm no expert in criminology or anything like that, but it could be very useful in understanding, you know, why these crimes occur and the systems that are put in place to help them occur. You know, if you look at um, the guys who were in the, you know, the death squad and stuff, they were very much from, like, an impoverished backgrounds who were given, a new lease of, of at life. They've brought the army and the intelligence services given money and power. And then, you know, they felt like we have to do whatever we're asked of because, you know, these people gave us a new life and these systems in place. I think there's a lot of lessons that can be learned.
0: You've witnessed the perpetrators who who are still in power. They may not be the ruling party, but they were still in high positions. They were brave enough to engage in the truth commission. Why do you think in Britain those in power are avoiding it?
1: Well, I think, you know, you you can't say that they were brave enough to engage with us in in the Seychelles, but that was also, they were kind of, their hand was forced to a certain degree. The commission was set up because uh, even though at the time the commission was set up, the executive was part of the former party that was, uh, you know, Albert Rene's party, the National Assembly had, was primarily at that point the opposition. So they passed this bill to create the TRNUC and its mandate and its kind of uh, legal authority. And through that, because of someone like, they hired someone like Gabrielle, who is impartial, integrity personified and will drive the process the way it's meant to be driven. She kind of brought people in, out, and got them to kind of testify and got these high-ranking people to engage with the commission. So I think it's not just about that Yeah, the perpetrators were brave and they decided to raise their hand and said, yes, we did this. There was a certain degree of we had to convince them. But I think it's important at the end of the day, it all comes down to society's will to have such a commission. You know, does society feel like this is something that will help, you know, address these issues? And then it's also up to political will to actually set it up and have it, you know, give it the funding and resources it needs to actually be successful.
0: Yes, Um. And, and, and how would you answer a question that I grew up with, or a statement, uh, just get over it, it's in the past, <laughs> just get over it. How, from your experience, what would you reply to that?
1: I hate that term, uh, <laughs> and I'll tell you why. Sorry, because I, I I had to control myself and not cuss because I hate that stuff. Me term. too. But, uh, <laughs> because I grew up, I'm like I said, I'm Sri Lankan, and Sri Lanka has this history as well with yes, the war.
0: Absolutely. And
1: that is something that I would hear a lot of people say, and you know, I come from the ethnic majority. I come from the side that wasn't as adversely affected by the war. As people from other ethnic backgrounds, so when I hear people from my background say, "Oh, just be, they should just get over it," I say, "How can you say that? Because you didn't have to deal with the brunt of, you know, the abuses and the trauma. You know, how can you say that? Because you didn't experience the war the way that some of these people did, right? It's up to them to decide how best to get past this and how to heal, not us to tell them how they should be healing." And we can pro- provide guidance and advice, but at the end of the day, it's, up, it's their decision. If they don't want to get over it, they don't have to get over it. And that's fair. So I wonder, with Britain,
0: I mean, a lot of people say it's, it's so far in the past that there is a risk in opening up the wounds again. With Britain... Let sleeping dogs lie. We've managed to not confront this past for centuries. So why are you bringing it up now? What mm-hmm. what might you reply to that?
1: Well, uh, these kinds of emotional wounds, do they ever actually close? You know, so are we actually reopening them or have they just never been closed? And do we need to actually close them? Is this process just helping close them? Obviously, it's going to be emotional. It's going to be difficult. And But I don't think it... It's justifiable to say, oh, it happened so long ago, so we should just let it go. These abuses that occurred, you know, even centuries ago have a trickle-down effect and affect how uh, their kind of descendants live today and the trauma that they carry.
0: And do you think that happens on both sides, the perpetrator's descendants as well as the victims?
1: I feel that, yeah. Yeah. You know, I feel like it could do, and it depends on how society uh, operates. So with um, Seychelles, for example, one of the big challenges was that it's such a tiny country. right? It's 100,000 people. Almost literally everyone knows everyone. So if you have a perpetrator and the perpetrator has say, a, a wife and a child, people are going to know that that kid and that, that woman are you know, related to this perpetrator. And they might, you know, kind of treat them differently because of that. But maybe in larger societies, people might not know. So it really depends. And it's very kind of uh, contextual about how much it affects them. But uh, that's kind of how society treats, you know, people related to and affiliated with the perpetrators, but also about the trauma that people have as individuals being descendants of perpetrators. That's a question, I guess, that you would have to ask someone who is a descendant. know and how it how it has affected them knowing that their you know ancestors did terrible things
0: yeah exactly you're right it is a question for them because we're talking about what would motivate them to enter this process really and i struggle with that because often they're in positions of power even if it's just the power of being the majority like you were saying but i wonder from having experienced that in the Seychelles, people in power, okay, they were sort of forced to engage. At the end of the process, it sounds like they benefited from it in some ways, emotionally.
1: Well, yeah, I think emotionally as well. And something that I would also use, you know, when I would try to convince them is about image. Because I found that people in power obviously care about how society perceives them. And they care about their image that they put out. And I would always say, listen, it's difficult to raise your hand and say, I did a wrong thing, but people are going to respect you for that because you're going to be one of the few that actually does it. Where, like out of, you know, over a hundred perpetrators, you have like seven who've actually been brave enough to raise their hand and say, yes, I did this. I am here to give closure to the families and tell them what happened and tell them what we did. You know, um, and that's always something that I think plays to people in power is listen, if it's good for their image, they would do it. And a process like this, if you, you know, approach it in the correct way, it can be helpful to your image. They might see past, you know, the violations you committed and actually appreciate that you came forward and provided this truth.
0: Yes, in, in Britain at the moment, it seems like there's a real blame culture and you've got the media um behind that as well so it's quite hard in a way for people to confess without being sort of ripped apart um were there any retaliations um
1: to the perpetrators
0: or to the well or to the victims
1: um so actually the the perpetrators uh did not retaliate against the victims uh as far as i know from the the perpetrators i handled there was no retaliation because we I mean they knew they were already in trouble. So I think the, the victims feared retaliation. Uh, but the individual perpetrators I dealt with. There was never any instances of them, you know, intimidating anyone, threatening anyone, anything like that. From the victim side, I think that were obviously sometimes the victims would tell us that we want to confront them and shout at them and do things to them. But you know, actual incidents that were just a few here and there. there was a few WhatsApp threats coming in and threats being made on Facebook and things like that, but we never really had an there was never a situation where I had to run in and get involved. There were obviously there were heated emotions sometimes you know people would come say a witness would come and say something that the perpetrator disagreed with and I would get a call from the perpetrator who was really angry saying, you know like and just swearing and shouting and everything but they would never go and actually try to do anything to the to the victim. Uh, however, I remember after some of it was publicized about the perpetrators who had confessed. And we kind of publicized the the hearing dates for those confrontational kind of setting um, those meetings between the victims and the perpetrators. We did have incidents where the perps were calling me and telling me, listen, there are people driving past my house, like groups of men in, in like in a jeep. that." keep driving past my house and looking at us and things like that. You know, like my kids are at home, my wife's at home. We would have those kinds of things, but no one actually went as far as trying to physically harm them. I think also the fact that, you know, as these were the most feared men in the country, you know, people are going to think thrice before actually trying to do anything to them.
0: So here you might have, I mean, I've heard often when people talk about restorative justice, um, too much reconciliation, not enough justice. They want revenge or justice. How did you feel that generally people in the Seychelles at the end, how they felt about the truth commission? Did they see it as a sellout and that they've been denied justice?
1: Um, so, just first thing I want to mention is I find that justice is kaleidoscopic. You know, something I would always remember is that, you know, when you go to the International Criminal Court, uh, the building is reflective. And I always thought, you know, it's a reflection, because when you look at yourself, that is justice. Each individual has their own perception and notion of justice. I think it really depends on a case by case basis, people felt that justice was served. You know, I don't think a criminal prosecution is always necessary for justice to be served it really depends on what the individual the victim wants you know with regards to some of the victims they just wanted answers you know they were not out for blood they were not out for they knew the state did this they knew the order came likely from the president all right they just wanted to know what happened you know um we had one case where it was a double murder one of the most interesting cases actually where uh, a member of the opposition, political opposition yeah, the NPR. Him and a South African, uh, individual were planning a series of bombings, in the Seychelles, and they were captured. They were tortured. They were, they were killed. They were dismembered, and then they were blown up in a car. The family knew that you know this this the the fa- the complainants were the family of the Seychelles and the family knew that the state did this. They knew that this that the you know, sibling, their son, their this, that he was involved in these kind of, you know, resistance activities and in in these kind of kind of dangerous activities. And they knew the state did it, you know, but they wanted to know what exactly happened, you know, what, what was going on, you know, like they wanted to know the finer details and we got them those finer details. Uh, That was one of our most successful cases. Actually, we got, we got the names of all the perpetrators. We got so much evidence on that. And they were very happy with that. You know, the victims, we spoke to them after we had completed the investigation and they were happy with what we had found. Uh, they didn't talk to us about, you know, further prosecutions or anything like that. For them, they got what they wanted out of the commission. But there were some who were out of blood, who wanted the perpetrators to be put in jail, you know. Um, and yeah, you know, we could never satisfy everyone. Uh, and I don't think overall reconciliation, We, were, I don't think we were successful in that. Uh, and I think it would have been very difficult to be successful in that uh, because reconciliation is, means different things to different people. So it's going to be very difficult to please everyone when you have uh, kind of certain restrictions on what you can do. I do think, again, having an outreach program uh, and having the funding to have done that would have helped, you know, uh, would have helped us kind of educate the people on what they should expect out of this process. You know, to tell them, listen, we don't think criminal prosecutions are likely. So they would manage their expectations, and that may have helped them feel like they, you know, they've justice was delivered, but they came in thinking all these things could be achieved, and then learned throughout the process that it could not be, and I think that was disheartening for a lot of them.
0: And and that brings up reparations, which could be a crucial part of the reconciliation process. Although there's been a report, there doesn't seem to be any political will. To put it into practice, what did you hear from the perpetrators' perspective about reparations? Could reparations be done on a personal level, or were they
1: more on a national level? Yeah, when we drafted the reparations policy, we had a lot of consultations with experts from different international NGOs that you know dealt with uh, reparations and transitional justice, and try to develop something that was. Uh, in that met international standards, but was also unique to the situation in the Seychelles. Uh, so the reparations were kind of awarded. When I say awarded, I meant we, the commission would say, this is what they should be given uh, on a case-by-case basis. And we had a tier of crimes and the different crimes at different values, monetary values and other things, you know, like uh, non-monetary reparations attached to those, those violations. I think political will is something that really hindered the trnuc and a lack of overall competency there was uh, very few people who actually were specialized in the work that you know that we do in international criminal investigations and international law in uh, the legal space in general for example with one of the disappeared we found a, a potential piece of remains which we wanted to have tested you know because they had done dna testing but not at a very uh, reputable facility so we said listen We need to spruce and get the best of the best to test this because this might be the last hope for these victims to actually find any piece of remains of their loved one. And I remember sending letter after letter after letter after letter to the relevant government authority without response. When I would flag that with the victims and the victims would cause a fuss, they would be like, oh, we didn't get any letters. And then the victims would be like, listen, my investigator... send me a copy of the letter whenever they send them to you as well. So we know you got the letter. You know, because I would hand deliver the letter. I wouldn't put it in the post. I would get in the car, go there, and hand deliver it. This is for this person. Like, please take it. And we would have those kinds of situations. So with reparations as well, I think they're still playing the COVID card of, oh, we haven't recovered from COVID. It's been three years. You know, tourism is doing pretty well in Seychelles use outreach, talk to people, use your, you know, the Seychelles is, is, has a good reputation in the international community. Use those contacts to get that money because this is the least we can give these people, you know, if not anything else. Give them the funds and the resources they need to rebuild their lives. You know, and they're getting up there in age since these crimes happened so long ago. You know, they can't wait 20 years to get this. They need this now.
0: Yes, and- you know, It would be very disappointing if that doesn't happen. One of the the aims of the commission, I felt, was to have a shared version on the past to go forward with. Was history
1: rewritten? I think so. I think that the history, I mean, the number of states that would come and tell me, you know more about my country's history than I do. Or they would tell me, I never knew about this. I never knew that our country had this history. You know, we were never taught this in school. You know, no one, our parents didn't talk to us about these things. You know, and now we learn about our country's history. And as traumatic as it may be and as terrible as some parts of it may be, it's still your history and it's important to know it and know the fact, not know what people's opinions are, because it's a very political country. So you know, depending on which side of the political spectrum you are on, the narrative changes, you know, the good guy and the bad guy changes. But here we have an impartial institution telling you that this is what happened. And I think that brings a lot of value to the country. And I think this, the Seychelles history needs to be publicized more. I think more people need to learn about it because it's fascinating. People don't know what happened there.
0: Well, the same you could say about Britain and colonialism. Mm hmm. I mean, it's it, because it happened far, far away, almost like a mythic tale, the other perspective is not given from overseas about colonialism. There are consequences to that. Do you think there are consequences when you don't know your history?
1: I mean, definitely, right? I mean, so, for example, coming from a post-colonial country, I was not taught about other colonial past uh, growing up. You know, we weren't taught about Sri Lanka's history as such. We were taught about the Second World War and the First World War and the French Revolution, which is very strange when you think back now. Uh, why were we learning about those things specifically and not about our own history? Um, and I guess it's just if you don't know your own history, you don't know how to right the wrongs that you that your ancestors have made. It takes acknowledging mistakes to actually improve yourself. You know, so... If you are not aware of the mistakes that were made in the past, how do you know what changes need to be made going forward? So I think it's crucial that colonial history is taught and is taught in the correct way uh, from the correct people as well. It's also about who teaches these lessons. It needs to come from people who have some kind of experience in it. it. It really does hit harder and it hits home when you hear it from someone who's actually dealt with the effects of colonialism. And yeah, I've, it's something that I strongly uh, support is the introduction of Britain's empire and the colonial past into uh, school curriculums. Yes, there's
0: a big fight for that going on. And what I'd like to bring up, learning from our past, is you've mentioned um, systemic lessons. In South Africa, Certain colleagues of mine have said 20 years on that after their truth commission, after their independence, things are worse than ever. But that's because the system actually never changed. They had different players come in. They had independence, political independence, often not economic independence. That was still controlled from overseas with people pulling strings. So the system stayed the same, the lessons in that way weren't learnt, but the people potentially changed. Do you think there's a place for truth commissions to look at how people are manipulated by systems and make recommendations for changing those systems?
1: I think truth commissions, it, they can do so much. It really depends on how they're staffed and how they're funded. Uh, because obviously this kind of research uh, and these kinds of investigations they take money, they take time, and they take expertise, and all of that is an investment, and that goes back to that political will. If the country really wants, you know, really thinks that this is this will bring value to the to the nation and you know to the world uh, more broadly, they need to make that investment.
0: Well, at the moment, you could say, if we knew our history in Britain, perhaps we'd know better that we're being manipulated by divide and rule. And it's been something that's been used again and again historically over our colonial empire time. So now it's just come home to roost. If we never get political will, do you think there's an opportunity for some of the benefits of the Truth Commission to happen on a grassroots level? on community level, truth commissions, where people can at least come and tell their story, be witnessed. If there were beneficiaries of our colonial past willing to come into dialogue with them, great. I mean, we, we could collate ideas from the public on reparations that we could present to government. In the end, this might lead to a political will to do it. How does that sound to you?
1: It depends on whether These people, the people who have been affected, let's just call them victims, you know, just to make it easy. But it depends on whether they want it, whether they think this kind of process will benefit them. Because like, you know, like we've discussed, it's a very emotional process to talk about these things. If it's at a grassroots level, something I guess I would always think is what are we going to achieve? What are we going to get out of this? Is it just going to be me telling my story and getting it all out there? you know, but maybe I've already done that, maybe I've already, you know, kind of gotten it all out and, and confronted those demons, maybe there's something else I want, you know, maybe I want monetary reparations, maybe uh, I want a public apology.
0: Yeah, I mean, it it's also retells a history, for example, where I live in Brighton, there is a monument to the Indian soldiers that died in World War One and Two, that people aren't aware of, they were literally whitewashed out of history, they weren't They weren't celebrated in um, parades post World War One, just to find out these unknown histories or or also to bring, like you say, countries from across the Commonwealth, through the Internet, their stories back to Britain and their suggestions for how to resolve this reparations, apologies. Is, could that not work without big funding?
1: Uh, for me, it's all like I say. Always kind of leave it up to the actual victims of these things to decide whether it's worthwhile. And I don't know. I don't know if that happens through you know a mass survey or if that happens through a focus group or how you kind of ascertain what society's will and what their wants are with regards to this kind of processes. But I feel like that would be the starting point, and from there, you know, it would be about trying to manage expectations, given the limitations that are faced. And yeah, I, I always try to leave the power in their hands with these things. Even with the Truth Commission, you know, like we said, complaints driven, no one had to come and provide their complaint. You know, one of the most prolific cases in the history of the Seychelles, which is tied to the UK, you know, the uh, the assassination of Gerard Waro. Uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with that one.
0: No, please, please fill us in.
1: So Gerard Warreau was the leader of the opposition, the political opposition. He was in exile in in the UK. And in 1985, he was assassinated uh, on his doorstep in Edgware. To this day, you know, Scotland Yard and the Met, they're still investigating his murder. His family didn't bring the complaint to the TRNUC because they were going through this process with the police. And that was fine. It was one of the biggest cases. It would have been great for us to investigate it, but we didn't because the complainant chose not to bring it to us because they thought it wouldn't be helpful to come and tell us in, in this truth commission. Um, and yes. obviously the other big question is, when you talk about colonialism, a lot of the victims aren't in the UK.
0: But through online, you could potentially do online truth
1: commissions. Yeah, I think it, it depends, you know, like, I think, so for example, with the Seychelles, like online is very challenging because it's, it's so expensive. And, you know, to firstly, Wi-Fi, for example, is so expensive that not many people have, you know, uh, Wi-Fi at homes, for example, you know, or data on their phones as such, you know, and how big is this thing going to be? Uh, And you have to kind of think about the limitations as well of how much you can actually do, because when you talk about colonialism, it's such a huge, 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 huge uh, kind of atrocity that occurred, that addressing it is obviously going to take uh, a massive effort.
0: Do you think in the Seychelles, the sort
1: of history of colonialism and independence is ever I didn't ever experience kind of that conversation about colonialism coming up. That was not really a discussion that we had. Uh, I had with people uh, who we never really discussed the colonial history too much, to be honest.
0: Two last questions. How did you deal with subjective recollections? How did you keep yourself to the facts and managing not to be manipulated by rumors
1: and social media um i mean i'm always someone when it comes to these things i look at the facts um i don't let uh emotion <clears throat> get involved in how i analyze something and i think that's that's really important investigations right i mean uh say someone makes a complaint and it's very emotional you want for to be able to prove that that this happened but you know in in some instances we find that it didn't and you have to be able to place the facts obviously when you convey those facts to the complainant you have to be sensitive in how you do so and you know obviously you don't blame people or say you know you were lying and think make accusations but you do need to stick to the facts and you need to you know uh, kind of look at things from a neutral lens if you want to get the actual truth out and not just what people want to be the truth
0: which is which is a skill in itself i must say and then we've talked about whether it's closure or a new... Well, my question is, was it closure or a new start? Did it lead to a change in the culture?
1: I think it's too soon to tell. Um, If it's changed, led to a change in the culture, I mean, the Commission just closed its doors about a month ago. Um, So I think it's too soon to figure out how this is all going to affect society. But I think reparations are a big part of that. Um, I think that might help people move on. So apologies are not enough then. You know, the thing with apologies, like I said, is um, in the cases where it did happen, the victims just didn't care about the apology. You know, they didn't care about the apology. They didn't care about the context. They were so deeply scarred by the loss of their loved ones that they didn't care about why it happened. You know, Um, and I think that, also was a flaw in the mandate of the commission when it was drafted, the fact that we look for individual perpetrator responsibility, you know, because you're looking at guys who executed operations. But those, those operations, you know, they didn't, like I always tell them, they didn't wake up in the morning and decide to go and kill someone. You know, these orders were passed down a chain of command. But the anger is not geared towards the people at the top of that chain necessarily. The anger is geared towards the people who executed the operation. And I think... There's a degree of unfairness to that as well. You know, I understand it, but I think it's also unfair that it, it happens like that. There was one case, however, where it was, it was enough, where the family members of uh, two, two people who were murdered, they forgave the perpetrators because the perpetrators were very young at that time. And they were given their orders by the president himself, you know, and all that came out. But for the other cases, we didn't really see that, unfortunately.
0: No, and it sounds like it's on quite a personal level if, if the b- apologies to be effective, one-to-one. I mean, if you're dropping bombs from a height, you never have that personal person who, who pressed the button that dropped the bomb.
1: So then maybe you blame the country and the system more. Yeah, these were all very personal cases, right? I mean, the, the, the executions were by gunshot, by stabbing, by suffocation very very intimate crimes so obviously there's a far greater degree of kind of uh, you know being personal than if it were say a bombing or something like that
0: i'm aware that we're going to run out of time in a minute so i just we're talking of closure and i'm slowly closing it up i mean you've given me so much to think about what next for you are you going to continue with this work
1: uh, yeah so i currently i still work as an investigator uh but you know in in, in the it's a private for a private uh, international investigations firm. Uh I don't do too much on international uh law at the moment but I do want to get back into that. I'm really happy that you have put the time and effort into actually discussing the and TRNUC because like I said I don't think it gets enough coverage and I think more people can you know learn valuable lessons but also learn about the history of Seychelles because when you say Seychelles, everyone just thinks for utopian a holiday destination, and the country—it's not fair to the country that that's all it's known for. It should be known for the entirety of its history and everything that's happened there, because it has ties to, as you say, colonialism. It has ties to so many other things.
0: I mean, it's—it's it's a beginning of a journey of exploration um, to the Seychelles, and and actually, it's all about changing our landscapes everywhere, isn't it? Looking at the same landscape in a different way. So, like you say, it's a holiday destination. It's seen as a paradise, but just underneath the surface, there's a whole other story. Thank you to all our contributors. If you're enjoying this series, please follow and share. And importantly, if you support the call for a British Truth and Reconciliation Commission on colonialism, please sign the petition. The link is below the series intro. Thank you.